Welcome to Evolution of AI with Reese Jones. Dive deep into the intricate world of artificial intelligence, exploring its origins, its impact on our culture, and its future trajectory. Let's get started. Today, we're going to talk about what happens after the singularity. A principle from Copernicus is that the Earth is not the center of the universe, and we're observers in a phenomenon that is unfolding and a participant, but not in control of it. And Earth is not the center. And Copernicus was persecuted to some extent because before his time, it was blasphemy to say that the sun might be the center of the solar system where the Earth goes around that as opposed to the other way around. And sometimes the perspective of that you look at things changes how you see them. And, and the observer is really important in physics, and it's important in how we perceive reality. As I mentioned, what happens after the singularity requires discussing, well, what is the singularity and where do they come from and, and what do they mean? And a singularity is a term from physics from a, about 100 years ago that describes the event horizon falling into a black hole. And it's a mathematical term, and there's a lot of other uses of the term. But it turns out there's a lot of them in nature, and you can observe them if you look closely. But it's basically an acceleration into unpredictability and acceleration of change primarily. And a lake nearby here has what they call a, a glory hole, which is the place where the water goes out. And when you look at it a certain way, it's, it is a singularity. It's the water is, is still in a lake right nearby it. But as you get close to the edge uh, of that, the water goes faster and then becomes turbulent and unpredictable. And what does it feel like when you go over the edge and you're going from a predictable, stable lake water across an event horizon of a singularity into an unpredictable chaos. And it's something that would be a fearful moment. And it doesn't happen like a light switch. It's not on off. It's a, a gradual process. And it might be over millions or billions of years or over thousands of years, but it, it doesn't happen in an instant. It's a process. And the mathematics underlying it is it's an exponential acceleration into unpredictability. And another place singularities are observed is in black holes, as I mentioned. And a black hole is closely related to a, a Big Bang in that it's everything starting at one point and then expanding out in an exponential way to uh, a wider, even vast expanse is what the Big Bang Theory is about in that 13 billion years ago, where there was apparently nothing, it became everything in the linguistic way of everything, or at least the universe. And it's been expanding since that time. And as we get better telescopes and better instruments, we can look and see that it's bigger than we expected, expanding faster than one might intuit. But it's an expanding thing that started at a apparently one point, but maybe not precisely because it's not easy to measure that detail. So at the center of uh, galaxies, as we describe them, uh, most of them uh, 
seem to have a, a, a black hole at the center or a singularity point, which is uh, perhaps related to being the attractor that pulls the galaxy together and things fall into the black hole into unpredictability and various uh, discussions in physics over the last 50 years as to, well, what happens inside the black hole and where does the matter go? Where does the information that made up the matter Stephen Hawking is famous for his theories about this, that the information falling into a black hole doesn't disappear, it doesn't go away, but it comes back out as Hawking radiation, which is where that the information is conserved and the matter is conserved and it evaporates back out. And the, one of the uh, theories is the eventual death of the universe will be to evaporate into Hawking radiation and just become a big gas. Another interesting theory is that black holes for us may be a big bang for somebody else. And we might be living inside of somebody else's black hole. And that it's a recursive cycle that we may be having. Our big bang might be similar to the experience of people inside other black holes. Not that there are people inside of other black holes, but just as a way to think about it. And so this sort of relates to as the Big Bang expands, it turns into matter and the matter consolidates and turns into stars and planets and galaxies and this sort of thing, but it also turns into chemicals. And these chemicals can be viewed as inert, but they can also be viewed as more structured complexity of the information. And there's many different kinds of materials and chemicals in space and in the stars and in the space between the stars that they call interstellar space. And these are evolving to be more and more complex. And this evolution of complexity may be a pattern that is worth uh, contemplating. And so these chemicals are distributed throughout the galaxy and the solar system. And some of the matter congeals into solar systems and planets. And some of those planets have material continuing to rain down on them from space. And uh, these are known as asteroids. And when they're uh, seen in the sky, it's a meteor. And it, when it lands on the ground, it's a meteorite. These meteorites are carrying the matter and information, and they can land here. And where they come from is from out of space that where there's all of the material elements necessary for life or for carbon-based life have been found e either as clouds in interstellar space or uh, on uh, meteors or, or other things. The elements that make up life are common in space, evidently, and they arrive here and transport mechanisms like on asteroids. And recently, Japan had a space mission that went with a rocket out to an asteroid and they landed on the asteroid. They drilled the material from the asteroid and then the rocket brought it back to Earth. The main asteroid didn't land here, but it, it's the first successful mission to mine an asteroid and bring back the material to Earth. And it's being analyzed now to see whether it has the components of life. And these components are like the ingredients of the complexity of life, that there are many of them, lipids and 
amino acids and other carbon-based biochemical forms that I mentioned have been found in space and they're looking to see if they're all of the necessary components for the recipe to make life are are identified and then how they're mixed together is a bit of a mystery but once they're mixed together it creates life that, that as we've talked about before is self-replicating complexity that then goes under natural selection that decides which forms of life survive and which don't so the complexity is increasing on an exponential scale and in more recent times in the recent few billion years it's been increasing in complexity that we would going from a simple cell to cell within a cell which is a eukaryote to more complex multicellular organisms like worms to things like mammals but then evolving uh, intelligence that uh, adds to the complexity uh, all on an exponential scale. And interestingly, if you plot that exponential scale of increasing complexity of life, you find on an exponential graph that a straight line takes it back, not just to the beginning of uh, life on Earth, which is four and a half billion years old, but all the way back to at least uh, nine or 10 billion years old, which is uh, almost as old as the universe. And so it's pretty uh, interesting indication that life is older than Earth and life didn't necessarily start on Earth, that it started somewhere else before Earth was fully formed. And it's landed here and is increasing in complexity. And there's no indication that it's slowing down or going to stop increasing in complexity, that it's part of the origin of life that may be part of the origin of the universe and the origin of matter and all related to the same phenomenon of increasing complexity of information. And so how this works in a little bit more detail is our first chemistry and then the chemistry into a code that codes for more chemistry and then into more robust code that can reproduce and, and the, in a stable coded form. And so this is a, a graph of sort of the evolution of complexity of life going through chemistry, but then into multicellular organisms and then adding in compute or intelligence, which is sensors that sense the environment, memory, which memorizes the, the past, processing power, which is what computers do, that then can take the information about the past and process it into the future which we would call that a brain. And the brains are now adding more digital information like language and, and not specifically binary digital, but information that's not uh, necessarily the chemicals themselves or even the code, the chemicals, but actually virtual and that it's uh, neurons firing or not firing. And this evolves into increasing complexity, which would be just increasing complexity of life. And the life, uh, obviously, there's chemicals in the RNA, which are in the cells, which are in the brains, which are in the digital, but it's the digital form runs on a substrate. And so this graph is the evolutionary substrate hypothesis of how the substrate of what is life is increasing in complexity 
And so the definition of what's alive is not just chemistry and it's not just digital and it's some hybrid of both, but it's really the complexity that matters. And it's complexity of information more than what the information is carried by. And evolving over hundreds of years now is a digital substrate, which is now in the form of transistors, the silicon transistors that will likely evolve into quantum substrate, but it's improving at an exponential pace or evolving at an exponential pace. And this has been going for 120 years or so. And the interesting thing is it's an exponential graph with a, a more or less a linear arrangement of, of the information over 120 years. But this is a, a graph of complexity. And interesting sort of detail about it is that the words along the top of going from mechanical to relays to vacuum tubes to transistors to integrated circuits, which are, we call them silicon chips, is continuing up this exponential path of improvement. And as I mentioned, it will likely continue even as new substrates evolved or will evolve. And the likely next candidate going from integrated circuits into more complexity, more compute power, more speed and smaller space and more efficient function is first uh, three-dimensional silicon and then quantum computation. And so there's no sign that this is going to slow down and it's no sign that uh, here that it's dependent on the substrate. And so the complexity is accelerating or increasing, and it's a long-term trend that's substrate independent. Whereas this is most uh, personally noticeable is the improvements of phones and the capabilities of the internet, and that they're becoming part of life too much sometimes. But the what defines a person is no longer the chemistry, it's no longer the biology alone, it's a person plus a phone is what's considered a whole person now. And that phone, if it's not attached to the internet, it's not a complete system. And these things are evolving what it means to be a person, what it means to be alive. And what is the information stored in the digital form and in the internet and in the phone? Uh, it's not really chemical, but it's not static either. And so it's alive. And so this is tracking the evolution of thinking and how brains have become more abstract in what they do over time. And so if you add the internet as another form of processing of, of information to a brain, it, it's like another evolutionary step in terms of the increasing complexity of the substrate of life. And so what are the risks of this in terms of continuing forward? One existential risk is nuclear war, where how we might all destroy ourselves or the climate might change so much on this planet, whether caused by humans or otherwise, that this complexity of biological life can't continue. And one of the recent fears that we've talked about is that the life itself might become AI and that the AI may destroy the biological life or other life in sort of an AI apocalypse. And so these are all legitimate fears that people have. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. 
But what are other long-term paths that aren't existentially destructive, but might be a positive uh, outcome? And so an interesting observation made by Fermi, which when looking at life in the universe is, well, when we look out into space and other planets and galaxies and so forth, we don't see any activity that would suggest that there's a biochemical life out there. It doesn't mean there's not other kinds of information processing out there, but we don't see a biological life. And so this is, there's a phenomenon of where is everybody if all these things work the same way? And that it's introduced to either the existential risks of self-destruction happen, and we're just like a, a breath away from that happening to life on this planet, or there's another explanation that's consistent with the things we've just talked about. And, uh, and here's a cute video by Jason Silva about the transcension hypothesis, which was coined by John Smart about 15 years ago, of uh, what happens after the singularity. All right, so let's talk about probably the most out there, outrageous, cutting-edge theory I have come across in a long time. It's called the transcension hypothesis. And it's what happens about 600 years after the technological singularity. Now, the transcension hypothesis by John Smart is an attempt to explain or to account for Fermi's paradox, which is the questions that asks, if the universe is so vast, if there's trillions and trillions of galaxies with solar systems, with planets similar to ours that had way more time to develop intelligent life and intelligent life that created technology and so on and so forth, why don't we see evidence of all those other technological singularities that might have occurred in all these other civilizations? And the reason that Transcension Hypothesis says the reason we don't see anybody anywhere is because complexity and intelligence eventually stops going to outer space and starts going to inner space. Consider the iPhone in your pocket, which is a million times cheaper, a million times smaller, and a thousand times more powerful than a computer that was $60 million and half a building 40 years ago. So you have a billion-fold increase in price and performance, and then you have this miniaturization that continues. So when you consider the fact that 25 years from now, trillions of times more intelligent computers will be a thousand times smaller than today's microprocessors, you start to see that we have what's called STEM compression, space, time, energy, and matter compression. More intelligent, more density, more communication, more energy, less matter, smaller. And eventually, virtual minds living at the nanoscale and at the femtoscale will keep compressing space, time, matter, and energy into smaller and smaller dimensions until we eventually create black hole-like conditions and disappear out of the visible universe. And so the destiny after the technological singularity for all civilizations like ours is transcension, which is essentially to disappear out of this space-time reality that we know of into a black hole-like environment created by us and then slingshot into the future and meet every other civilization over there. Another slice of that same perspective comes from Timothy Leary about 25 years ago, made this graph in his notebook that how there's more than one reality and the amount of realities, plural, that we're, we deal with per day is also on an exponential curve, becoming more complex and more realities experienced per day, where 
thousands or millions of years ago, people had a very consistent reality of living in nature and and getting food and avoiding predators and reproducing and and things were relatively stable and unchanging. And and the uh, uh, advent of tools that have become smarter, you can uh, experience more realities per day than originally. For example, language allows the ability to talk about stories that are either a a likely prediction of the future or or just fantasy or fiction of of an interesting story. And the technology has enabled the number of these different stories that you can interact with is accelerating at extremely uh, rapid pace, where TV had many channels and each one is a story. It's a reality. There's sort of the reality channels and the home cooking channels and the nature channels. And you can switch between them. And so you can experience many of these per day. And then the PC gives you even more granularity to those. And the internet has billions of channels to choose from at any given moment. And you can switch amongst them. So you can take on the reality of some show or the reality of a friend or the reality of of people in your tribe. And the humans have the capacity to deal with about a hundred or so friends that you know well enough to trust that each one is slightly a different reality. And so you're having, when you're talking to one person, there's a language that you use differently than when you're talking to a different person who might be a different age or might be other things different about them. And so those are like different realities that you switch between from day to day. And the number of choices of these is increasing beyond the capability of the human brain. And so AI, in a way, is another tool to help you deal with more realities than your brain can. And uh, so this increasing of complexity and increasing realities continues unabated. Thank you for uh, joining us on Evolution of uh, I with Reese Jones. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Stay connected as we continue to explore the fascinating world of AI. Until next time, keep questioning, keep exploring.